All right. And I finally didn't forget that this week. Hebrews 13. Let's read verses 17 through 25. It certainly is part of the context. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. As those who will give an account, let them do, do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this that I may be restored to you soon. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I shall see you. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. In one sense, verses 20 through 25 could be the very beginning of the letter, not the ending. Here is, you could say, somewhat of a summarization of the book of Hebrews in somewhat of a personal sense. <clears throat> we can all, I think, relate with what I'm about to say. Letter writing is a lost art today. When I was in school, I was taught how to begin and end the letter. Novel idea, isn't it? Both the beginning and the end of the letter is influenced by the person or persons you are writing. Is this a personal letter conveying sentiments of love, joy, concern, and so on? Or is it a formal letter, a business letter, dictating terms, direction, or some other business-like address? Who we write to and why we write matters. The author to the Hebrews has utilized both formats of letter writing. He has written a formal or business-like letter that addresses the status of the church and the kingdom of God. He has written a personal letter which probes the hearts of the Christian brothers and sisters he loves. The examples are basically he has written the business of the new covenant and the superiority of Christ. That is super important for us. And yet he has delivered it in a personal way. The blending of both of the formal and the personal can be very effective. A dry business letter can communicate an impersonal tone and make things worse. A personal letter without any sympathy may never produce the tone and feeling intended. I believe the author has communicated the love he has for his church and for God's church while reminding the church of her responsibilities to endure within the faith. The, understand, the author understands the tension created in such a letter. And we see this in Hebrews 13, 18 through 25. Two segments to this study this morning are how the author wrote and also why he wrote. Those two categories. How he wrote, first and foremost, we see in verse 18 
Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. Nothing better than having a clear conscience to write a letter, to write an email, to send an address, to see someone in person. Maybe that novel idea would be even better. But before we get into how he wrote the letter, verse 22 is the way we're going to to look at it first. Let's reread that. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Again, I said that this could be verse 22, especially put right at the very beginning of the letter. But before we go there and look at those three unique words that are there, to urge, to bear, and to exhort, list some of the negative words or tones in this letter to the Hebrews that could be construed as insensitive, unempathetic, insulting, and even rude. Remember, we have to place ourselves... It's like reading the Psalms, the Psalms of David, or the Psalm of Asaph. These are real living and breathing people whose hearts pump blood to all the systems within their body the same way it does for you and I. And therefore, they have intention, presuppositions, emotions, love. They have reasons for writing letters. And the same is with any letter that you read in the epistles. Therefore, the tone of this letter is not the norm. I usually would not write a letter that would be on, on the edge of just downright insulting. I've picked out a few places in the letter. Can you remember in your... And I know it's been a long study. But can you think of some places where someone may have construed the letter as being insulting, rude, and other places? Okay. So the implication by the receiver of the letter is you're not content. Sometimes that enters into play, doesn't it? How do I, and this is why I hate emails. Is that a surprise to anybody here? I hate emails. They are sound bites of nothingness. Okay? I mean, yes, we need it in this day and age. But I'm an old schooler. I was taught cursive. I was taught to how to write in a, a check for a checkbook and a, how to write a letter. And I, we get college students at the farm, kids coming up, and there's nothing more pathetic than a, than a college girl, this happened last year, who maybe was going to be a scientist, and she's fumbling around trying to fill out her mom's check, and she can't do it. She couldn't do it. That's not an unusual thing for the farm. But we are, have to be sensitive to the receivers of the letter, right? And yet, and by the way, this letter is written by a pastor longing to go home to his flock, sending the regards of those who are with him, who live in probably Italy, and also his own regards to the people he loves. And yet he does not want to neglect his pastoral responsibilities about the very serious matter of leaving the new covenant for an old covenant perspective. 
He's got to include that. But does that mean the pastor has the right to 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 reject all, you could say, the sensibilities of kindness and love and good conscience? Of course not. Of course not. If Gary and I turn out to be some squirmy worms in our conversations with you and insulting and rude, you might as well get rid of us because actually that's not how a pastor is supposed to be. We do not lord it over you, but we work with you for your joy. That's what Paul says. That's our... That's not only our goal, but it's our responsibility. But it's this contrast of the business of the day, of the new covenant and the superiority of Christ, and I love you. And I don't want to insult you. But you may receive it that way. Anybody? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a bunch of them. Yep. You know what I find interesting about myself? Okay. <laughs> That's not going to answer the question, but what about yourself, Dave? <laughs> when I'm walking good, I've always bore open with advice that if I'm walking oh. bad, if I'm walking bad, all of a sudden the That's a very insult. good insight. And maybe that person betrays me, doesn't understand me, and all the nonsense. And you, and you know, um, that's the reason why pastors have to be intimate with their congregation. Right? If you can't name half the people in your congregation, then you probably shouldn't be a pastor in that church. Some pastors, and I've got a list, some pastors today, celebrity pastors in particular, are more concerned about themselves than the sheep of the flock. I was getting back to your question. Mm-hmm. I would go to five uh, eleven. Okay. Since you have, you since you have become dull of hearing, that could insult the. Uh, <laughs> I didn't pick up on that one, but that's a great one, isn't it? Are you stupid or something? Right? Now, that would be the receiving end. You're dull of hearing. What a wonderful Victorian way to describe an insult. Right? Come on. Now, the reason why the pastor takes these steps towards... The, the, the line, you know, to go over the edge and say all of a sudden, now I've just made em- enemies of the people I love, right? It's because the gospel is that important. It is that important. So, pastors have to take risks as well. Uh, I'm going to go there in just a second. Anybody else that have a, a text in here that could be construed as being insulting or rude within this letter? Okay, verse 5. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we, could, we, cannot, we cannot be good New Covenant Christians without moral character. And here he brings up moral character. And sometimes when you say what is good moral character, someone takes it personally as if, are you implying something? Right? Let me go through some of the text that I believe could be misconstrued. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says, Pay much closer attention. How shall we escape such judgment if we neglect so great a salvation? Pay much closer attention. Are you implying that I'm not? I'm going to Bible study. I'm reading these letters when we receive them. You know what I used to hate when I was younger? When the teacher used to say in my youth, sit down and pay attention. Because you know how young men 
women, young ladies don't usually do this, but young men in eighth grade slouch, right? Sit up and pay attention. Some can construe this letter to that degree. In chapter 3, he says, Take care, lest there be should in, in any one of you an unbelieving heart. How many times parents here have said to their children, You be careful. And then, depending on the tone, You be careful. Or You be careful. Right? There's a difference. Tone does not come out in letters very well. We know that in Third John. We're going to read that text in a few moments. It's a very different thing to be in person with somebody and then writing a letter to somebody and how it conveys the love that you want to convey and the love that may not show up in the letter. Chapters 6 and 10, of course, probably the two chapters in and of themselves that would be possibly construed as offensive. If you have tasted the word of God and have fallen away, it's impossible for you to be renewed back to repentance. Chapter 6 and 10, Maz will be saying this. Are you Christian? Are you Christian? You want to move more closer towards the Mosaic Law. You're not experiencing martyrdom, but you're certainly experiencing persecution. And therefore, moving back towards the Mosaic Law, at least to some neutral place, you want Christ plus the Law. Well, you can't do that. Are you Christian? Because if you go over the edge, then there's no restoration. I mean, these are the threats of chapters 6 and 10. He's talking to Christians. The threat is, you're not a Christian, and you deserve eternal judgment. I mean, these are the conclusions of a person reading a letter. If you go back to the Mosaic Law, you've trampled underfoot the Son of Man. I don't know about you, but the hairs would stick up if I'm reading this letter, and I'm one of those who maybe went back to a synagogue just to kind of see my old friends. They'd be standing up in the back of my neck reading this letter. Well, if you go on sinning willfully, we see this in chapter 10, a certain terrifying expectation of judgment remains. I, has anybody ever written a threatening letter? Or at least that has elements of threatening within it? That's not going to be a letter well received, right? By a pastor especially. Yeah? Is there anything particular about that <coughs> sinning that he's referring to in that chapter? If we sin willfully, is there any particular... I mean, that could be threatening to everybody in this room. Is that the point? Well, no. The, the, the whole point, and it's the context of the book, is that going back to the Mosaic Law is not an answer or solution to your dilemma of suffering. It is not. Christ and Him crucified and more of Christ with more grace within life's challenges. That's the answer. We already went, in fact, I think I had that text that goes back to the high-handed sins of the Old Covenant, the willfulness of sin. But let's just, and, and again, I'm approaching this because you gave me the text. This is a salutation and an exclamation. An ex, 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 exclamation point of the, of the letter. So it's a little bit tougher to teach in the sense that 
I wanted to draw in the personal nature of the letter itself and to bring in that real people with beating hearts write letters like this in the New Testament where some people may construe it differently but there's a greater goal for a pastor in the first century truth and a clear conscience and that matters and it still matters today doesn't it our relationships with one another matter in truth clear conscience dialogue conversation experience all these things and relationship to one another we don't and, and uh, I, we had Alex and Sarah out I said to you that I have a very good friend Mike Moore and we, we have uh, the same biblical worldview, but in other areas of life we divert okay so I teased him and I said, you know, I was watching PBS one time and it was one of the, uh, one of, it may have been one of the people of uh, Obama's cabinet. And he says, what you really don't want is a president who puts people in his cabinet who basically just put rose petals in front of them as they walk down the aisle. In other words, what's the, what's the phrase we would use today? Yes, uh, yes men. We just don't, you don't want a whole bunch of yes men to the president. You don't want a whole bunch of yes men to a pastor. You want this connection between the two. That truth matters for the pastor himself, but also for the body. Doesn't it? And in clear conscience and relationship to one another. <clears throat> if you are without... Chapter 12, verse 8. If you are without discipline, you are illegitimate children. Could you imagine writing another Christian? You potentially could be an illegitimate child of God. That's like, kind of like an exclamation mark to the tension in this letter that could fracture relationships. But there's something more important for a pastor to do and that's right with the clarity of the truth of what it means to be a servant of Christ. And by the way, he's alluding to himself as well. He uses in verse 21, working in us. He does that so often in this whole book, this whole letter. He interjects the plural us. I'm with you in all of this trouble and suffering. Knowing that some of the people reading this letter would Focus on the offensive parts and forget about the author's balancing verses. The author finishes with, I urge you, brethren, bear with this exhortation and pray for us. I'm not just praying for you, but I need you to pray for me. And I'm urging you, bear with this exhortation. So what does this mean? Well, when he says, I urge you, it's similar to the word used for the Holy Spirit that conveys, I'm coming alongside of you. I'm not dictating as a pastor. I'm coming alongside of you now as a friend and brother in Christ. By the way, the allusion here is verse 20. And it's, you could say, the backdrop of everything that he wrote. We have a great shepherd. I'm an under-shepherd and you're the sheep. There's submission for both categories in the church. 
leadership and also the flock. We all have a great shepherd. This is what God wants us to do. He wants us compliant and pliant to the will of God, not to the will of man. This is why legalism is so vulgar. Prosperity gospel, vulgar. All these things go inward to man and power and selfish ambition rather than outside with love and care and submission to one another because it's submission to God. That's how the body is supposed to work. I love you. I have something hard to say to Mike say today. Example, I do not have something hard to say to Mike today. But I submit to Mike as I go to Mike to say something hard to Mike today. That's because I know I have a greater shepherd who knows and places within me a conscience that is in accordance to the will of God, not to the will of man, let alone the will of my own self. Have you done that? Or have you failed in some of your relationships? Maybe, and I don't mean in a total, total sense, but you just, you know, you had an edge and you went to an individual brother or sister and you just were diametrically opposed in a certain area and you went with an edge. And then you get done with the conversation. You go home to your wife and you say, that didn't go well. Right? It's because you didn't go because Christ has said over you, you were already head over that conversation. It has everything to do with our relationship with Christ and with God as a whole. So, he says, I urge you, I beseech you. And by the way, the Greek word lends itself to, um, to produce a particular effect. I'm urging you to produce effect. The reason why I wrote this letter is that I'm urging you to produce something in you. That is to go back to the new covenant. To go back to Christ as a whole. Because we already know you go back to the old covenant, you're going back to the Mosaic law. Christ is greater than Moses. Christ's house is a bigger house, a greater house, a permanent eternal house. Moses' house was a temporal house, a type of house. Tony? I noticed um, reading through some of this is that um, I never see anything where he's very careful not to compare himself to them. In other words, that he's better. Um, or, or he doesn't do what they do, or he's, you know, in a different class. And a lot of times, I think that's what sometimes we get stuck into, is that he, unintentionally we might mention just something that implies that we don't do that, mm-hmm. or that I'm not like that, mm-hmm. or I'm better than mm-hmm. you. You know, and I think that's where, like, what you're talking about is not only being equal, but also in the writing a letter, you have to. Connect with the person saying that I'm in the same place as you are. Mm, very good. Yeah, I, I don't know how many times when I've done any type of counseling. Uh, I'm a sinner like you, brother or sister. Um, let's move on now from this place. If I don't recognize that, if I don't internally accept that within myself, um, then you're going to have a legalistic mindset, an authoritarian leader, so on and so on. I mean, these are these are just things that are ultimate requirement. Our Savior was the head great shepherd, and yet he humbled and humiliated himself. 
If you don't see that in leadership, then don't go to that church. Well, the second word he uses here is bear. In other words, in verse 22, I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation. Like I said, you could take this verse, plug it right at the very beginning in chapter 1. But the author had in mind something much more important, and that is the deity of Christ. The quality and essence and substance of Christ and God. The radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, He upholds things, all things by the word of His power. And having made purification of sin, He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. That's much more important than explaining Himself in this letter. Much more important. But you could have put it there. You could have put it there. But I think even the placement itself shows the humility of the pastor. Just in the letter. So the word bear here, it's it's interesting. It could be a very offensive word. Jesus said in Matthew 17 and Luke 9, He says, um, He scolds the father of a lunatic. How long will I, or God, put up with this unbelieving nation? We still use the phrase today. Do I have to put up with this anymore? This bad boss? This bad relationship? Do I have to put up anymore with this bad kind of job? Or this bad friendship? You know, I'm just putting up with you. Right? You know what the author says? I know this letter is offensive. I know it has places where the hairs are standing up in the back of your neck. I hope you see the places where I'm with you in spirit and in truth. And I love you. And I love you that much to tell you the truth. I hope you put up with me. Would you just put up with me? Now, there's a difference here, by the way. We put up with the world. We love our enemies. We put up with the world. We have to bear under the world, don't we? We don't put up with Christians. Not in the same sense. We put up with Christians. You know, maybe there's a Christian in this in this body who just has this political angle. And they just can't stop bringing it up in conversation. And it's just, you know, politics is kind of like, it's like sandpaper, that brand new sandpaper. Not old sandpaper that's lost its edge. Brand new sandpaper that will make you bleed if you rub it on your arm, right? When you put up with that Christian, that's hard to love because they always bring up politics. Guess what? You put up with them in love. You put up with them in humility because that's what Christ did in His own... Can I use the word? Stupid apostles? In many ways, right? I'm stupid. Trust me, I'm stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Joyce agrees. Joyce agrees. And in that, the Bible study ends, right? Tony. What I have to say is true, but my presentation is flawed. Right. It's not perfect. So what he's saying, in a way, is that these are these are the words of 
God mm. um, that, that I'm presenting to you, but I cannot adequately present it to you in the way that he does. Well, knowing that this is inspired, I, I can't agree with that one little element. But I do know that in the emotions of a person who would write a letter like this, as one who says, I have a clear conscience in this, as the author says, he recognizes those offensive parts. And he says, I'm urging you to just put up with me for this exhortation. And the exhortation here literally is, I'm imploring you. The author recognizes the letter's harshness. He also recognizes its ability to impact the Christian. He's got to do what he's got to do. That's what pastors do. Pastors don't like to tell people, examine your faith to see whether you're in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13. I, I hate doing that. Hate it. But when a life goes in a certain direction and the worldliness starts to increase and any godliness is starting to decrease, it may be even non-existent, I'm compelled by the Word of God, as Martin Luther said, basically. I'm compelled by the Word of God to say this. It's no less offensive, but I'm compelled by the Word of God to say it. But I'm hoping that you see that I've lived a life that loves you and the body here to see my sincerity of truth. I hope you see that. So we see him urging the body to accept this difficult letter. Some things are better spoken in person. But in the first century, that was less practical than in the 21st century. Let me read Third John. Mr. George has put me on this verse quite a few years ago. I love it. It's a great text. It's great wisdom. Not because Gary George said it, because John says it. I don't want to give him that. I don't want his head to be inflated today. I had many things to write to you, John says. Verse 13. But I am not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Can I give you a word of exhortation myself? Do not settle matters in an email. Do not settle matters in an email. It is not personal enough. It is not personal enough. And people will misconstrue an email as something that you never intended, but they think you did. Never settle anything in an email. When possible, go person to person. And by the way, isn't that where the sincerity and the conscience is seen by the other party? that you might have a disagreement with. What do we do when we see someone is offended by your or my words? What do we do? We put up with the world and we still love them. But we love the people in the church. And we may have to tolerate some Christians with eccentricities, right? <laughs> Don't make this church or any other church a, a unobtainable perfection. You know how many Christians I have said who are complaining about their church and I've tried to be the balancing act? Not just as a pastor, but just as a friend outside of church situations. You know how many times I've said, by the way, I'm so happy that the Lord wrote Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And I am so happy that the Lord gave us 1 Corinthians the first Corinthians and second Corinthians. I am so happy he did that because he 
recognize the church will never be perfect. Perfection comes in the heavenly place at the right hand of the Father and on the sea of glass, worshiping Him forever. There is not the calmness of the sea of glass in the church. It isn't. It does not exist. We can have a good church, which I believe we do, and there is peace amongst the brethren. But when there's the greatest of peace that this church experiences, expect Satan to test us. Satan to sow some kind of discord to divide us. So, we've already looked then at how he wrote. Sensitive and serious. Convicting with conscience, with love. That tension that's balanced, that describes human relationships, doesn't it? We keep an avid in a marriage, right? Joyce and I do not have a perfect marriage, just as the church is not perfect. We live with tension from time to time, but in an overall sense, we have a wonderful marriage. Don't expect any more of marriage. If you think it's going to be perfect, you should never have gotten married. Right? You just should never have gotten married. <laughs> Wait, what? Well, who said what? <laughs> Has Michelle just destroyed paradise perceived? <laughs> wow. All right, so the second part of the study tonight, today, it's a shorter section, is why he wrote. Look at verse 20. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. He sows peace, the God of peace, does he not? Within the body of Christ that even gets a letter like this. And he does it so wonderfully because when we take our eyes off ourselves or another person and we look to heaven and we look at Christ, peace is sown in our heart. The chastisement of his peace was upon us when he was on the cross. Was he not? That's what Isaiah said. He died for our peace in this church. He died for peace in our relationships. And yes, he died for peace in a church that would receive a tough letter like this. He died for peace. Christ's superiority over the law of the temple and its priesthood prove He is an eternal God with an eternal covenant. John Calvin makes a big deal out of verse 20 in relationship to not through the blood, that He's the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, but He's the great shepherd in the blood of the eternal covenant. Only in the blood of is there an eternal covenant? Not to say through would be wrong, but the idea, though, is he corrects the grammar there and says, in the blood is the eternal covenant. This is a verse that is, you could say, a call to peace in the body as a whole as well. Because Christ <coughs> is the center of that peace, as I said before. It's the reason why Paul can say what he said. He says, if I do... He's talking about his stewardship as a minister of the new covenant. He says, if I do it willingly, I have reward. If I do it against my will, I have a stewardship. 
Either way, I have a responsibility and a duty. Not only to the people of God as a pastor, but also I have a responsibility and duty to the great shepherd of the flock. That's my responsibility. That's why I... I, When Christians sometimes think of the word duty, they think of legalism. And I can understand why they think that. But duty is not a bad thing. It was used a lot back in the colonial days. Duty is not a bad word in the Christian tongue. Okay. It is our duty, as Paul would say, to steward the sheep of the flock. This is what the pastor writing this letter is doing. Knowing the confrontational parts of the letter, what kind of leader do you think the writer was, and how does this compare to some leaders of today? Let's go to a couple texts. Go to Hebrews chapter 6. Verse 9. Now, after, all, after giving a severe warning of saying to those, to those that it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame, look what He does in verse 9. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. Things that accompany salvation. We know better, do we not? That's a shepherd who enters into the agony of being a Christian in the first century. And I even say to my own self, I need to enter into the agony of being in the 21st century because it has its own agonies, doesn't it? 21st century is not easy. It's getting harder to live as a Christian. Go to chapter 10 of Hebrews. Verse 32 and 39. Verse 32. But remember the former days. And by the way, the severe, verse 29, how much severe punishment do you think he would deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded it as unclean, the blood of the covenant by which he is sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. That's the insult. That's the warning. That's the threat to those who want to go back to the old covenant from a Christian perspective. He's writing to Christians. Look what he does. But remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Verse 39. But we, we are not those who shrink back to destruction, but are those who have faith to persevering of the soul. You see, the pastor is like, I'm as weak as you, but if I have to, I'm going to pull you along with me. We're going with this, this struggle in the first century of persecution together. And I'm pulling you away from Moses' law. I'm pulling to you the grace, the peacemaking covenant, the new covenant of grace that comes in Christ. And I'm not being a covenant theologian when I state it that way. But Christ is so much better. If you want release from your sufferings, follow me and we will get there 
and find the peace that God promised us, that Christ promised us. Peace I leave with you. Not the peace that the world gives, but the peace that I give. Right? So what's the contrast? What do you see then? What do you see as a great contrast of the pastors, the celebrity pastors of today compared to the pastors that we should have in our churches? Um, I was happy to hear Alex because he has a much, you know, I'm a farmer and a part-time elder, so I don't have a very worldwide slash American breadth of Christianity today. But he obviously is in the setting to examine that. When he said Sovereign Grace Chapel is a pretty good church compared to the other pastors he's seen in other churches, he said that on Saturday night, right? Saturday night? Thursday night, sorry. And I, I felt good about that as pastor. So what's the difference then of our age, of the celebrity pastors then, and compared to what should be? And, you know, comparing ultimately to the great shepherd himself. Give, give me some of the insights that you have of what you see that is not, you could say, biblical leadership. Well, I think um, the, uh, the continual asking for donations mm. and the finding out later of the uh, Peter jets, uh, the yachts, uh, mm. the fancy cars, and uh, I'm not saying somebody shouldn't drive in anything that's uncomfortable or doesn't work, mm. but uh, mm. but asking for asking for money then driving off in a Mercedes is just a little. Little Just a little that. outside the realm of biblical <laughs> humility, right? That's right? Just a little. Who else? Susie? Self-esteem. Oh, yeah, okay. Self-esteem gospel. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. Mr. George? You find a celebrity pastor. I'm not quite sure who you are. you talking about Benny Hinn? I mean, who, who, who are you Well, I mean, it, it crosses the tandem. It's uh, more self-orientated pastorship rather than body and headship of Christ orientation. So you're just sort of humility. Okay. They're lacking that. Yeah. 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 Great temptation. Uh, Alex also said that he has seen, and I uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that um, the Southern Baptist leadership is filled with people who are uh, pastors who are uh, not accomplished oriented, but uh, career oriented. Is that the way you word it? Yeah. Yeah. I've seen a lot of it. I don't know that I've failed as an, I mean, is it okay. 50% yeah. or Yeah, right. I've seen a large number of guys going into ministry who are more concerned about building their own platform than serving the church of God. Mm. And, and uh, you know, obviously, we have a great example here of the writer, the pastor riding a flock. Beth, do you have a? No, I didn't have Oh, I'm sorry. sorry. Uh, yeah, go They're not interested in serving us and knowing us. And pointing out our sin and mm. what we should be working on or looking at, mm. they're more about what they need. Mm. I get a few things here. Some pastors are men pleasers, self promoters, attention getters, fame seekers, selfish ambition, lying likers, lovers of popularity, wedding crashers. You might want to know the definition of two of those. 
a lime liker is someone who likes the limelight. Right? A wedding crasher is a pastor who likes the cheap seats in the synagogue or removed in the 21st century who gets invited first to the wedding of a certain person in church who can sit at the head table. Seminary I went to, I get a newsletter from it every quarter mm-hmm. or whatever. And what's sad is I'm seeing more and more graduates are not going into par- to church ministries, pastors, parachurch ministries, counselors, authors, a lot of authors, a lot of books being written. Um, nothing wrong with counseling, but counseling and things like that. It's just, I think people, the world's getting harder to pastor today, unless you want to be a mega church guy and that's your <coughs> But to be a frontline, average, Pastor, so difficult that many are choosing to shy away from it. Right. I think one of the dangers too with the celebrity pastor in the conference circuit is you don't get to watch these men in their daily life. Mm. All you know is that this man is a spectacularly gifted communicator and he can handle the word of God, but you don't know whether or not he's feeding his wife and kids at home. Mm-hmm. And so I think you you have to be very careful in esteeming men that you are not watching day in and day out and day in and day out. And I think that's mm-hmm. one of the beautiful things of the, the pastors within our own local churches is that the congregation gets to observe them. Mm-hmm. And that's a... We've, Remove that. These men are almost now above reproach because you just simply don't know. All right. Yeah, I've always wondered about how do you shepherd a flock from Joel Olstein's perspective. I mean, it's it's an impossibility um, for people to really get to know him, except for maybe a select few people. I'm just going to say quickly to add on what else you said. I believe I'm not against radio ministries and pastors that are outside of our local area, but I believe just like honey, you should be eating from the local area. Because the local pastors know the local people mm-hmm. and the local culture and the you know what I'm saying? So sometimes teachers mm-hmm. are not they're not that they're not true, but the, the local pastors know the local people, the local needs, the spirit of God knows the local needs better. So we're not I think we're better fed personally. Mm. Amen. Well compare these characteristics. Jesus had no place to lay his head. And he, when he died, he had been placed in another man's tomb. He humbled himself in God's mighty hand. We see that in Philippians chapter 2. He's poor in spirit. He was a rock of offense, a stone of stumbling. And yet how many pastors today are willing to offend according to the gospel in the right setting, the time and place rather than being men pleasers? to further the progress of a career and a size of a church. He laid down his life for his sheep. He was the ultimate of humility. He is the archetype of what it means to be um, a humble God in terms of what we are to be in humble as God, I should say. We all are shepherded by Christ. This is the whole point. He is our leader, our head. He is our great shepherd. The author in verse 21, let's finish there. Hebrews 13. This is all done, all accomplished by Christ through an eternal covenant in His blood. A covenant, a new covenant that is better than the old. Readers of this book 
readers of this letter do not think you have a better place in life. Even if persecution is relieved for a moment, it will return again. Better to suffer for doing what is good, Peter says, than for doing what is bad. This finds pleasure with God, Peter says. And he's done this for a purpose, to equip you in every good thing to do his will. Not the pastor's will, his will. The pastor is just in a spot. If he wants to be obedient, he's got to say those difficult things to the body of Christ who I I pray even, and I use this word, is teachable. When a leader goes to you, are you teachable? But he's equipping you to do his will. If I come up and show you what God's will is in relationship to the word of God, then you must be teachable. I must be teachable. Because we both have a great shepherd that's over us. So he equips you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and forever. He's equipping you, he's working you, and he's doing his will in you, pleasing. We tend to see Jesus only shepherding his disciples. But do we see Christ, the risen shepherd, shepherding over our souls, even right now? There's a wonderful, what is called a triadic pattern in this text. As God has sent His only begotten Son to die on a cross, to pay the penalty of sin, to pay for your sin, as a penal substitution, to bring forth an eternal covenant that through it will bring in relationship God and you to Him. And that through the Holy Spirit all this will happen. In other words, the implication here is God is the God of peace who sent the great shepherd to die for the sheep and to equip you and to work in you and to do His will is only accomplished through the Holy Spirit. This is what theologians point to as an implied triad pattern. Because the three persons are at work, not only in your salvation, but in your sanctification. And as I and I think our the Tuesday night attendees on Tuesday night have probably learned by now, when we are saved, it's God the Father sends the Son, the Son dies on the cross, and 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 does the atoning work to which the Father sent him to, and the Holy Spirit brings into us into the kingdom of God this relationship through Christ's finished work. In sanctification, it's from the Spirit of God working within you, the very person of God in the Spirit, as a distinct person of the third person of the Trinity, works in you through Christ to the Father. So from salvation from the Father, Son to the Spirit, and sanctification from the Spirit to the Son to the Father. God accomplishes the very perfect work He promised to do in His own disciples and in you and I. This is what He has done. This is what He is doing right now. It's a wonderful work of the Godhead to which you and I can be certain. When Jesus said, I will never leave you nor I will I've never leave you nor forsake you, 
He even says in Hebrews 13.6, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? We shouldn't be afraid and look for an alternative escape route to avoid persecution. But we should meet it with Christ and know He's with us. He's our helper. He stands alongside us. And this is what God does perfectly. It requires the submission of our will to His will. That's the ultimate Christian calling, isn't it, though? It's as simple as that. And I mean simple. Are you doing the will of God? If you are, things may not be rosy, but you will have inward peace and you will have an eternal hope in this eternal covenant. This is where you could say the water meets the road for the Christian. Are you submitting to the will of God? The great shepherd over your soul, just as a pastor has to as well. Let's finish in prayer. Father, we thank you. We worship you. We exalt you. We are but worms in the presence of the world, O Lord, as David wrote. Worms, these crawly creatures of slime that the world does not care for and would step on if they could. But in the eyes of God, we are precious. We are your sheep, O Lord, to whom you died for. And O Lord, you go and even follow one lost sheep and leave the others in safety. If there's one person here who feels lost as a sheep and have been seeking alternatives to the gospel life, let them go back to Christ. Go back and enter into his presence with exceeding joy in the fellowship of the Godhead. And, O oh Lord, that you would give him that peace or her that peace in the presence of God himself. We thank you, O oh Lord, that the worship service ahead, I pray that this has been just but a preparatory class of desire to know God and to see God and to worship him. Oh, that we would adore him even now. Amen. Thank you, Lord.